Before April 19th. Right now it's not working. It's not working though. Should I put this water back in there? Uh, he didn't mute it, did he? Oh, yeah. How are you? Good. 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 How before April 19th, yeah. Yeah. So when the red is up here, before April 1954, the common belief, the universal belief, because it had been tried again and again and again, and people had failed, the belief was that man was not physically capable of breaking the four-minute barrier, that he could not run a mile in less than four minutes. That was the belief on the planet. It had never been not. Here's what happened, ladies and gentlemen. Roger Bannister came along, and he broke the four-minute barrier. Now, here's what's significant about that. Since that time, up to this day, over 20,000 people have done it, including high school kids. What changed? 20,000 people. What changed? Here's what happened when they got on the track. They knew it had been done. And because they knew it had been done, there was a new belief about this barrier, about this goal that was unreachable. And I'm saying that if you know anybody that had some goal, some dream, something they wanted to do, and they did it, then I'm saying that you know in your heart that if someone has done it, then you can do it. It's possible. If someone can make their dream become a reality, then it's, it's possible that you can make your dream become reality. And it's possible that I can bring my greatness out here in the universe. That I can do what I want to do. It's possible I can write my own book. I can have my own business. I, I can take the trip and travel around the world. It's possible. I can bounce back from adversity and reinvent my life. It's possible, regardless of where I am, that things can get better for me. It's possible. Bannister has pushed himself to the limit of physical endurance, but he speaks modestly of his epic achievement. The year that Rogers Bannister broke the four-minute mile in 1954, they said it couldn't be done, that the human lungs would explode, that it was physically impossible for any human to do that. The year that he broke it, well, after he broke it, 20 people that year broke the four-minute mile. And then the next year, 150 people also broke the four-minute mile. Well, what happened? Well, people didn't all of a sudden start to get faster. They didn't train better and wear better shoes. No, there was a mental barrier that said this could not be done. This could not be accomplished. How much of our future is self-imposed? How much of what we do and what's going on in our lives is, well, you know, our family has never or nobody in our group has ever, or we have never been able to, and we impose these limits on ourselves. As a church, 
It's so easy to say, well, you know, this is who we are, and this is our group. And, and, and I had somebody even in our own little group once, and I didn't want to correct them because they were older than me, like some of you. And, and in our, not our church, but in our Baptist circle, they said, well, you know, churches like ours and our type of churches, we're designed to be small, and we'll never grow, and everything else. And I thought, how much self-imposed limits do churches put? Even on their own mentality, we'll never grow. We'll never see kids get saved. We'll never see lives transformed. We'll never see addicts get clean. We'll never see marriages brought together. We'll never see someone finally be able to say in their life, I actually feel like someone loves me because I know Jesus. One of those final words of every last church before they die, they always say, well, we never did it like that before. Let me say this to you. This is... This is not a self-help seminar. This is not a self. This is not Tony Robbins, and I'm not trying to badmouth him. This is not a self-help seminar. You can do anything you dream about if you stay positive. Yes, okay, that's that's good, that's nice. But the truth is, you can do anything you dream about if it's God's dream that He puts in your life. Yeah. If it's God's will, if it's God's plan for your life. You see, you don't have to be. For some of you, this is important. You don't have to be like your dad. You could be the first person to graduate college in your family. You don't have to follow the same path that your mom followed and that you, you saw take place. You don't have to be an addict. You don't have to repeat the mistakes of your past. Listen, your future is wide open, yes, but your future, when it's determined by God, can be amazing. Yeah. You see, there's nothing wrong with self-help and encouragement. There's nothing wrong with that. But you see, I don't want a me answer. Let me just, I don't want a me answer because I don't want a me future. I've seen what me does in my past, and I don't want it in my future. You don't need a you answer, what you can come up with. And I don't want a Oakland Woods answer. I want my future. I hope your future. And I want Oakland Woods' future to be what God wants for us to be. Because that, that truly, well, that's really the only unstoppable thing there is in this book. If you're taking notes today, our thought as we start is this. Oakland Woods is. Oakland Woods is a church whose future is God's plan. We have big goals next year. We've got big desires about building things. We want to be involved in building churches and helping church planters in our area, in our community, in our state. We want to be involved in that. Eventually, we want to plant our own church that comes out of this, this uh, uh, church. Can I tell you what my dreams is? One of my dreams is right now that one of our little bus kids or maybe a, a kid whose mom and dad brings them. One of my dreams is one of those little kids grows up inside this church and eventually plants a church. Amen. That's actually one of my dreams. <coughs> He said, we've got another building that we're going to have. We're going to have to probably build something. We've got, a, we've got a problem. Let me tell you what, we have a problem. Because Awana is too big for our building. It's getting there. And then our students didn't have enough room because they've been growing also. And so they came up with a great idea on Wednesday. They're just swapping out rooms. They're using the same rooms, and then they're coming back and forth. And then last or after last Wednesday, uh, George and some of that, I, I don't think that room's big enough for us now. And so I talked with Pastor Ken and said, well, what are we going to do? What do we have to try to do? And he's like, well, we, we're, we might have to look at you know, renting a school building for the youth department to go meet at. Or maybe we'll look at something else. Maybe there's something out there. So, look, 
That's a great problem, ain't that? Yeah. See, I don't want Pastor Steve. I don't want the elders. I don't want what they think we should do. I want what God thinks we should do. Okay, I'm going to say this a little sarcastic. If you know me, I have a sarcastic defense. So this, this thought in your notes is actually, you should put sarcastic by it, okay, or obvious or dumb, okay? But if you're taking notes here, here's our deep truth, and I say that sarcastically. Only God knows the future. Only God knows the future. You see, and if that's true, I want my future to be his future for me. I want the future of me. I want my tomorrows, next week, my next year, my next month. I want everything about my future to be the future that he has for me. My future will be God's plan for me. That's what I want to say. Amen? My future will be God's plans for me. We don't do this a lot. In fact, we never do this. So let's try this. It'll wake some of you up. It's a dreary, ugly day. My future will be God's plan. Say that with me. My future will be God's plan. Doesn't it feel like we're in a cult? <laughs> there will be Kool-Aid after. But anyways, <clears throat> we're going to take on the book of Philemon today, and it's an easy one-chapter book. But I don't believe any book in the Bible epitomizes that only God knows the future, and that the future is not written better than Philemon. Let me give you some background before we jump into the book. Philemon, the man who it's being written to, is being written to by the Apostle Paul. He's in chains in Rome. He was a wealthy man. He was a prominent leader inside the Church of Colossae, where the book of Colossians is written to. In fact, the church met in his home. And Philemon had a young man. Now, the term that they're using is slave. You need to not think, you know, 1854 South slave. It's not that type of slave. It basically meant this young man owed him money, and to pay it back, he had to work for him. Sound familiar? Uh, quite frankly, in this here, there's a few slaves, but instead of a man being your master, his name is Visa. Right? Well, that young man, that slave young man who was working for him, and maybe his family was also a slave, we don't really know enough. But when he was a young man, and he probably a teenager, that's what most people suspect, his name was Onesimus. Onesimus. And he stole something from Philemon, this rich Christian man that he was working for. We could read into this. When I used to, being a dad of a boy just changed me in a lot of ways. Uh, when I have five girls and one son. There's so much estrogen in our home. But I, I view it this way. I raised my girls to protect them from the world. I raised my boy to protect the world from him. Do you understand what I'm saying? Nobody does more damage than a boy without a father, than a boy that has no one to answer to him. Uh, I'm, I'm strict with my son. I, I, put, I don't think we're too strict, but I have some basic barriers. He's 19 years old, and I have some basic rules. But I'm going to tell you, one of the best things I've ever did with my son, I taught that boy how to work. That boy, does, when, he, when he was 10, I handed him a snow shovel and said, it's yours. And then when he was 12, I gave him the lawnmower and said, it's yours. And then he started his own little landscaping business. Our last name, Sharon. You know what this little 12-year-old did? He changed his... My wife's Mexican, so her last name is Flores. So he made his landscaping company Flores Landscaping. And I said, wait, why did you do Flores? He said, well, I thought if people thought I was Mexican, they might hire me thinking I worked on it. 12 years old. But anyway... <laughs> but you know what? There comes a time in every boy's life 
And it's probably Onesimus, where he rebels and pushes back against that authority figure. You know what? And if he doesn't have that authority figure in his life, good luck to the world. And my son will do that. He's 18, 19 now, and he pushes back and everything. <laughs> but he's trying to be a man. But he doesn't pay his own cell phone, though, so he's not. <laughs> man, I, I, you know, there's a difference with the fathers. With my daughters, it's so much easier just to, oh, my girls and everything else. My boy, he doesn't like that. He's like, oh, don't hug me, don't do anything else. That's the only reason why I watch football now. Do you realize that? The only reason I watch football is the only time I get to hug my son. When the Steelers score a touchdown, you need to think Pastor Steve is hugging his son because that is the only time he will let me. Uh, I try to sneak down to his room, but he'll hear me. But anyways, his mom does that, by the way. But anyways, Onesimus is this young man, and he's rebelling, and he steals something. And so he's tired of these Christians. He's tired of this influence. So he steals something from Philemon, and he runs off to the city of Rome. You know, big sin city, and everything's going to take place. Well, eventually, he runs through all that money, and he does something that finds him in jail. Wanting to get away from all these Christians, wanting to get away from how horrible life is. Now he's in a dark jail and he's chained up next to the Apostle Paul. You can't run from God. Not only is he chained up next to the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian on the planet. The Apostle Paul turns out to be the man who led Philemon to Christ and started the Church of Colossae. Now, I don't know if Onesimus recognized him or saw him or if he came in later after Paul's life. But let me just throw this at you. There are no coincidences with God. You didn't just happen to be here. God brought you here to hear God's word, to sing his praises. God drug you out of bed on a cold, wet, fall morning. And he brought you here today because he wanted to talk to you about something. And what happens to Onesimus running from Christians and ends up next to Paul, running from Philemon and ends up chained next to Philemon's mentor, spiritual father? Onesimus gets saved. And after getting saved, what Paul does, Gary, Paul disciples Onesimus. And he starts to transform him. He works with him. Onesimus' time is up. And so Paul says, I'm going to send you back to Philemon because you stole from him. It's the right thing to do. So Onesimus is walking back to Colossae with a man by the name of Tithicus. Tithicus is carrying another letter from Paul. It's the book of Colossians. And, and Onesimus is carrying that book that you're holding in your hands called Philemon. And in this letter, it's an amazing thought. Onesimus is either holding his pardon or his death sentence. Because as a slave who stole, Philemon could have had him put to death. Who knows what he took? Maybe he took something valuable, something from Philemon's family, and he took it and he wasted it on getting high. He wasted it on a drinking. He wasted it on women. <clears throat> By the way, they will take every money you have. But anyway, he wasted it on everything. And Philemon could have him put to death. What a long walk Onesimus must have had there. How tempting would it have been just to run again but something changed in Onesimus. And what it was? It was Jesus. So I'd encourage you to read the entire chapter. We're going to come down here. We've been doing this during this season. series, just to kind of do something different. Gary left his glasses up here. I think he's trying to fool me. I can't read 
without my glasses. And so Gary left his here. Let me try Gary's. Holy cow, you're blind. <laughs> you're allowed to drive? <laughs> I'd encourage you to read the entire book of Philemon and understand it's a letter of Paul writing it to Philemon, trying to convince him about Onesimus. And we're just going to pull out some highlights of here. But if you read it, you can... Every mother in here can tell what Paul's doing. There's a little bit of passive-aggressive guilt. There's a little bit of, hey, you know, you kind of owe me everything. Yeah. My mom sometimes would do that, you know. I'd say I didn't want to do something. But she said, that's okay. It's just 48 hours of labor, you know, 10 pounds, 2 ounces. That's, that's no problem. Don't break your mother's heart. You know, that's, that's kind of what Paul does in the letter. There's a little bit of mother's guilt going on here, a father's guilt and everything. The theme verse for this is this, in Philippians 11, which we already read, which in time passed to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. Something happened in Onesimus' life. Oh, we know the answer. The answer is Jesus. And Paul says this, once he was unprofitable, once he was useless, once he had no purpose, once he had no reason to even exist, but now he's gone beyond that. He is such an important part. He's important to me. He is, he's changed me too. How does he change? How does Onesimus change from unprofitable to profitable? Well, let's break this down here. <clears throat> if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you four things about how he changed. Number one, have a new birth. Have a new birth. Look at verse 7. There's, there's a couple words Paul uses in verse 7 and 16. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee. He uses this word, brother. And again, again, verse 16. Not now as a servant, but a servant, a brother, beloved, especially to me. Listen, how you change is a new birth. Let me be clear on what I'm talking about. That's by accepting Christ as your Savior. Let me just make sure that you understand this, what the gospel is. The gospel is this, that you were conceived, born as a sinner, but yet God loved you so much he sent Jesus to die on a cruel Roman cross for you. And then he conquered the grave three days later on the first Easter to prove he was God and what he said was true. And if you in childlike faith will accept Christ as your Savior to be the payment for your sin, Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. When that happens, in Romans 10, 9 through 10, when that happens, you are born again. That is a new birth. You understand that before, before I accepted Christ as my personal Savior, I was in the family of Satan. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you are your father, the devil. We could call it a whole bunch of other words, but I'm going to be clear with you. I was in the family of Satan. I was spiritually dark. I was an alien to God. I was an enemy of God. But the moment I asked Jesus to come into my heart and begged him to forgive me of my sins, I was born again into God's family. I am God's child. I am God's son. There's nothing that could ever take away him. There's nothing that can separate me from that love. Do you know Jesus today? Yeah. Not historically, not about, not in theory. Do you know him as Savior? You see, that's what changes everything. You read so many great historical events of, of Christians, and they have this moment when they accept Jesus. I think of Billy Sunday, who was a great drunk, played for the Chicago White Stockings at the time. A great drunk, one of the best baseball players, and walked into the Pacific Garden Rescue Mission in Chicago, a drunk. 
and came out a child of God. Not only did he never touch a drop again, he became a preacher and preached all around this country about the evils of alcohol and telling people you must be born again. In fact, one time he was he preached so hard against alcohol and stuff, they would shut down and there's counties and stuff all across uh, America that are dry because of Billy Sunday. One time a man came to him and said, listen, if you get up there again and you preach about this Jesus and you preach about alcohol, you can do anything you want. We're tired of it. And the guy pulled back his jacket and revealed a revolver and says, we've got people in the audience, we're going to come after you. And Billy Sunday famously said, don't threaten me with eternity with Jesus. And he got up and preached Jesus. So how does that, what happened there? It's a new birth. Look, I'm, I'm for AA. Say amen. Because we're not against that. I'm for all sort of uh, health groups and small group things and 12-step programs. Those are good. Say amen. <laughs> Nothing changes your glory with Jesus. I, uh, I think of my own grandfather. I'm glad there was a church open at Highland Park back in 1952 on a Sunday night. <coughs> my grandfather walked in a, a good Irish drunk, working blue-collar drunk, and he walked out a child of God. Wait for a second, make a change. Number two. Have a new mentor. Look at verse 10. I beseech thee for my, look at what he calls Onesimus. He calls, Paul is basically his spiritual father. There's always something special about the person who leads you to Christ. If you're in here today and you feel like, well, there's, there's no connection between me and anybody, and uh, I don't have a deep family connection or anything. You want a connection with another human being? You could try marriage. I'm not saying it's bad. You should try marriage. But you want a great connection with somebody? Lead somebody to Jesus. The person who led you to Christ is always special. Yeah. So not only is Philemon special, but look what he says about him. I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Um, I've come to realize something that uh, everyone has an influence on somebody. And uh, the concept of being a mentor, I was talking with a young man in our church, and I said, uh, I'm not a good mentor. I'm a good father. And I said, if you're looking for a mentor, I might not be the guy. Pastor Ken is a good mentor. Because you know what a mentor is? A mentor, and Pastor Ken's really good at this. He loves doing stuff like this. A mentor is a guy who comes up and puts his arm around you when you screw up or make a bad decision. He says, now listen, do you think that was the best choice for you? Look how this has turned out. Let us think about it. That's what a mentor does. This is what a father does. What are you, an idiot? <laughs> what were you thinking? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Right? That's that's kind of what a father is. And uh, I'm not the greatest mentor in the world. And uh, I, I, when I see our teenage boys and our girls and everything, and I see them as like my kids. And that's kind of how sometimes I'll talk with them. And one of our girls and stuff will walk by and I said, "Man, you're dressed too old." You're just a kid. Why are you dressed so old and everything? I thought, I shouldn't be saying that. That's kind of mean and stuff. But everyone in here needs a mentor, needs that type of connection with somebody. Now, let me flip it on you. Who are you mentoring? Well, my son went, okay, well, you're, can I just break something to you? You're supposed to mentor your son and daughter. Yeah. All right? 
You've got a lot of experience, some of you, right? Amen? You're not old, you're experienced. You're not old, you're recycled. No. Um, you've got a lot of experience. Who are you mentoring? Well, I, I don't know if I have an opportunity. I don't know if I have a chance. Just so glad I mentioned this. Come on Wednesday night, and I'll hook you up with a little psycho, I mean a wonderful child. Who needs to be mentored? Come on Tuesday night. Somebody's probably going to come in there that actually needs a lot of help. You're perfect. You don't have any problems. But you come on Tuesday night, and you can connect with somebody. Rick, Gary, go to Sunday school class. Start to connect with other people. and start. When you become a mentor, it requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of patience. You, you had a mentor? My mentor is Pastor Gregory, greatest pastor that ever lived. I was blessed to have him as a pastor. But who are you mentoring right now? Number three, I gotta put my glasses back there. Have a new mission. Look what he says here in verse 13. Whom I have re retained with me, that in my stead, uh, I would have retained with me, but in my stead, uh, he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, you know, this young man, Onesimus, is so wonderful. I would have liked to keep him. I mean, he has been blessing me. He's been helping me. I'd like to keep him. But for your own benefit, I'm going to send him back to you, and I'm going to give you this mission. Let me clear for you what the mission of Oakwood Baptist Church is. It's to lift up Jesus. Amen. But not for the sake of just lifting up Jesus. It's to lift up Jesus so that it will draw all men to him. Amen. And it's not just so that we can draw men and gain a crowd and have something to say because pastor can't do anything else for a living, right? It's not just for that. It's so that we can lift up Jesus, draw all people here, and tell them the good news that Jesus saves. The mission of Oakland Woods is and always will be about Jesus and about people coming to know him as personal Savior. Listen. I made a little joke about this, <coughs> about these type of things. And you could see that, you know, oh, one of those kids broke it. And I knew exactly which kid broke it when Bruce told me. And I, he said something, and I said, is it so-and-so? He said, yeah. And I went, oh, I know that. I knew exactly it was that little boy. That little boy is either going to be a convict or a preacher. Sometimes it's hard to tell which is which. Amen. <laughs> But you mark it down here. We're not trying to build a beautiful building. We're trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And most people get saved before the age of 20. And if that's the case, if that's the reality, then we need to do everything we can to reach them. He said, well, that means Rick moved his Sunday school class for our kids. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, everybody in Rick's Sunday school class. When you go down to that classroom that, that George has, and it's probably tore apart and everything, you know what you're doing? You're not going down to that Sunday school because Pastor Steve asked you or Sandra guilted you. You're going down there with a mission. You have a mission because our kids needed a larger room and they needed a larger place to be. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing? And when one of those little ones gets saved and they get baptized and you see them break that water and you see them come up and tell the world, I know Jesus, you were part of it. Or you can sit there and go, well, that is our special, special outlet coming up. I, I cannot believe a child would break that. Pastor, you need to control these kids better. And listen, we're not trying to tear up our building. You know that about me. You know that I'm very particular, and I try to keep our building looking nice and everything else. But listen, this is not even close to being what worth one little boy's soul is. Not even in the category. We're not even in the universe. 
If it meant that we would see boys and girls and people's lives change and people could say, I will take a hammer and break every single light cover in this building. Me, not you. <laughs> so oh, I'm on a new mission. Right, Greg? Thank you. Greg will have to change the next one. <laughs> Number four. Have a new view of God's plan. Look what he says about it in verse 15. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season. This is, this is Paul having such a huge perspective. Can I say this what verse 15 is? Can I say this tenderly? I don't try to say this hard. Those of you who have lost somebody, or somebody dear to you, and you're, you're really trying to figure it out, because honestly, I'll be honest, I don't understand it. I walk out of funerals, I do the funerals, I preach the gospel, I walk out of funerals, I go back to my office and I cry, and I think, God, why did you allow this to happen? This just doesn't make sense. It's not fair. God, I've got a list of 20 other people you should have killed, and you, this person died? Why did this, this person was so good, they're such a great person, and I look at the family and people I love and their hearts break. When you go through this, look what Paul says this. He has such perspective on life, and he says this, for perhaps you therefore departed for a season that thou should receive him forever. What Paul is simply saying there is, maybe this thing that looked bad at the beginning, that he took something, he stole your grandma's vase, he stole jewelry, he stole something, and you're never gonna get it back. Maybe that heartache and the pain you went through had a reason, because if he had never stolen it, if he had never run away, he would have never met me, and he would have never met Jesus. <coughs> You see, when you have a new view of that God has a plan, that God is in control of this universe, that everything that takes place has somehow, some way, a way to glorify God. You understand, I can't give you an answer every time on this side of glory, in this time of frame, why things happen and how it necessarily glorifies God. Because I cannot comprehend God's mind and how God does things. But listen, by faith, I know there's going to come a time and a place when God will reveal all this to us and show us why it happened and what took place. Because God has a plan. So I guess the choice for you is this. You either take God's plan for your future. And by, by the way, the TV preachers are lying to you by saying, oh, God never wants you to be sick or have problems or anything. Look at the Apostle Paul's life. Do you, do you realize this? How many times did the Apostle Paul probably sit in there chained up in some prison cell or wherever he was at, chained up thinking, I'm here because of Jesus. And he was. I'm here because I serve and follow Jesus. And he was. And he could have just said, you know what? I'm going to denounce this whole thing and go away. But if it wasn't for the prison cell, Onesimus would have never got saved. Whoa! If it wasn't for the prison cell, Onesimus would have never got saved. If it wasn't for the prison cell, Onesimus would have never gotten saved. Somebody say amen. amen. If it wasn't for take out prison cell, insert something else, tragedy, something else that happened to your life, what would have not happened? What would have never taken place? Do you know, I, I talk about the mentor and God's plan and everything. Everything I have is because of Jesus. And when I look at Onesimus, I used to see myself. Now I kind of see my son, and I see other teenage boys. But when I used to see myself, I saw an 18-year-old boy, myself, struggling with God's call in his life. 
struggling with what God wanted him to do, running as far as he could from God and the world, everything God wanted. He said the opposite. That was me. And then I saw a mentor. I saw my pastor kindly, lovingly dealing with me, talking with me. You know why I listened to everything my pastor said? Because my parents never ran down my pastor. My parents always lifted up my pastor. And I'll tell you something. Thank God they did. Because when it came time for answers, do you know who I turned to? Oprah. <laughs> you know, I had times when I had issues about what God was doing. You know who I went to? I went to my pastor. The pastor kid dealt with me. We had counseling. We mentored. And finally, after about the third time, right there in his office, knelt down. Got down on my knees with him, right by his desk, and I just surrendered to God's will. I got up the next thing, and it was like May that time, and I said, what do I do now? He says, you're going to go to college, and you're going to go to Springfield, Missouri. Never heard of Springfield, Missouri. I wasn't even sure where Missouri was. And you're going to go to Springfield, Missouri, because that's what I think you should do. And I went, okay. Never visited the college. Had no idea what it was. I always jokingly tell people, thank God, Pastor Kidd, <coughs> wasn't a Mormon or he would have sent me to BYU instead. <laughs> I went to that school, and that's where I met my wife. That's the family I have. I joke about my family. The reason I joke about my family is because I'm a man, and if you get too close, I get all squishy inside and I cry. And it's easier to joke about people you love than it is to actually open up and cry as you're a man. Some of you ladies don't understand that. Some of you, I never get this about some of you ladies. Something about that chromosome stuff. Why do you want to watch a movie or just cry? It's the worst feeling in the world, crying. It's horrible. God said it's bad. And you're like, I just want to feel sad. Watch a puppy get hit by a car, I guess. But anyway. I got totally off track there. I'm on medication. You ever saw? It, it's amazing. There's like DUI, driving while intoxicated. This is like driving while preaching while intoxicated. I got all this allergy medication on me. All right. So what is this? What are we talking about? Well, I'll tell you what this is not as we close. Let me tell you two things this is not, just to be clear. Number one, this is not the best and final you. Really annoyed me when Joel Osteen came out with his book, the, Your Best Life Now, and stuff like this. That's not what God intended. The best and final you is wherever God puts you, and eventually the best and final you is when you're home in heaven. It is so easy to be discouraged by what others think of you. I talked with a buddy of mine growing up from First Baptist of Washington. We're still good friends. He was younger than me, and uh, he was a bad kid. No, he was a bad kid, and uh, he did a lot of bad things. And it was amazing, you know, I mean, we were still friends and everything he did, everything you're not supposed to do, he was like, I'm gonna do it. And he was rebelling against his parents and stuff, and then somewhere around the last 10 years or so, uh, his mom and dad were older, and his mom just went home to be with the Lord this year. He just kinda got right with God. And then uh, became like the son. He always joked, I mean, he drives his dad to church now, opens the door, gets him out. He took care of his parents and stuff. And he always jokingly says, I'm just trying to make up to my parents all the nonsense I put them through. <clears throat> and I told him, I said, you know, it's funny. Uh, because the guy who was one of our, our youth pastor, and he was a deacon and stuff, I was talking to him. I said, you know, he has a better view of you than he does of me. And he's like, well, Why? I said, because his last view of me was as an 18-year-old punk kid, and he's never really had much time in interaction with me. I said, but with you, 
He has seen all these amazing things and transformed. And I just got off the phone with him, and he went on and on and on about how great you are. And I thought, I never thought I'd hear that from him. You know, it, it's so easy sometimes. And I told him, I said, that kind of discourages me to think that it is so easy to be discouraged because of what other people think about you. But you know this? I know Jesus. And I know what he thinks about me. He thought I was worth dying for. You want to build yourself worth? Go home and realize that Jesus thought you were worth dying for. And I know what he's done in my life. And I know what he's going to do in the future. This is not the final of the words. Number two, this is not the only future you can have. Tradition says that Onesimus went back. You know what he did? I love the tradition. It's all tradition. There's no fact necessarily in this. But tradition says he went back and eventually became the pastor of the church of Colossae. It's amazing. If you got it, if, if you went back and told teenage Onesimus, he'd be shocked. He'd be shocked. First of all, he'd be like, I'm not even a Christian. I don't even want anything to do with these people. You're going to say I have to spend the rest of my life with these people, working with these people? He'd be completely shocked at who you are. If you could get in a time machine and go back to the and talk to your future self, well, first you have to kill Hitler, right? Everybody who talks about time machine says the first thing you do, you go back and kill Hitler. Right, Mark? Not your head, Mark. Yeah. You have to go back and kill Hitler because if you're not, you're a horrible person and you let the Holocaust happen. Okay, so you went back and killed Hitler. The one thing about that, can I just, I'm on medication. One thing about that, going back to time machine and killing Hitler, which Hitler do you have to kill? You have to kill teenage Hitler? He was pretty tough. You had to kill World War I veteran Hitler, old man Hitler. You have to go back and kill baby Hitler. So now I'm a baby killer. Okay, anyway. So I go back and time machine. That's okay. I think it's funny, Mark. But anyway, you get back in a time machine and talk to yourself. You would be shocked at everything that happened in your life, wouldn't you? You'd be disappointed too, wouldn't you? And how many times are the disappointments or all of the disappointments about the times you made your decision for the future? The struggles you have, the addictions you have, is because you decided you knew better than God. Let me just end with this little phrase. You can't, God can. You can't, God can. What's your future going to be like? I don't know, but God knows. How can you achieve it? Get into God's plan for your life. Be a soul winner. Get into your word. Forgive your neighbors. Love your wife. Take care of your family. Be a good role model to your grandkids. Then God will show me what his plan for my life is. No, that is God's plan for your life. And along the way, God will do amazing things for you. There are no coincidences with Jesus. A few years ago, I told this story. But when I pastored in Illinois, one of the guys that I pastored, he uh, owned the largest limousine company at the time in Michigan. And so he came up to me one time and said, hey, uh, I'd like to do something for you and your wife. And you can have a limo for free. And you just tell me the date. And I'll have one of my limos come and pick you up. I was like, okay, so I thought about it, and I thought, okay, it was like October, so for Sanders' Christmas present, it was mine, and there was a 
concert going on at the palace from somebody from the 80s and stuff like we're, we grew up in the 80s and, and stuff and I was like okay she'll like this guy because all the girls in the 80s like this guy and so I was like okay that's the date he's like fine so limousine shows up and we go there it's like February and stuff and uh, we go it was interesting to see because there's all these like 40 50 year old women wearing the same thing they wore when this guy was there in the 80s but they should have been worn it then and they definitely should have been wearing it then so anyway <laughs> So we're in the limo and stuff, we're pulling up by the palace, we get off 75 and there's that big ramp, right, we're, we're coming around there. And I'm talking with the limo driver and stuff and just chatting and things like this. I find out he's a Christian and stuff and so we're talking a little bit. And he gets on his radio and stuff and somebody announces, because they have like tons of them, one of their limos was broken down. And uh, I said, is, your, is it broken down? And he said, yeah, it broke down. I said, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, who knows, man, we have some really mad customers. And I said, well, we're going by there on that ramp. Why don't we just let them get in with us? Like we had this huge limo. It was just two of us. It sat like 20. Okay, so he did. And then they get in. He's like, really? You do that? I said, why not? Because, you know, the owner was our friend. And he knew we were friends. And I pastored him. So I wanted to, you know, do the right thing and stuff. So we stopped there on the ramp, right there on 75. It took us about 15 minutes to eventually get in. And in gets this 23-year-old punk guy with enough cologne on to knock you out, okay? And he's got like two beers in his hand and gold chains and everything like this. And behind him is like this 42-year-old blonde girl, lady, okay? She's like 42, 43, very pretty, but you can tell she's in her 40s and stuff. And they're on this date, this kind of weird date thing. They get in, we start talking, and then, you know, like a man, I ask the guy the chains and everything, slick back hair, real. And uh, I go, well, what do you do? And he goes, well, I, uh, I, I, I build casinos. I go in when they're building these casinos, particularly Indian reservations, and I'm part of the process of getting it going, and I make sure, and he told me what the vision he was in and making sure about that. Well, then the answer, I mean, he's holding like, you know, two power lights in his hand and stuff like this, and smelled like he'd been smoking weed and stuff like that, and tell me about his casino work, and he's dropping all these bad words and stuff. And then he looks at me and goes, well, what do you do? It's <laughs> always my favorite question. What do you do? I looked at him and said, well, my, my job is to make sure that you don't have a job. <laughs> and I just kind of laughed. I said, uh, I'm a Baptist preacher. And he just kind of went like this. And then she, who wasn't really involved in the kind of the whole tone and everything changed. She stops what she's doing. She looks up. She goes, what? And I said, yeah, I'm a, a Baptist pastor. I pastor over here. And we're just kind of on a date where we're giving our you know, childhood and doing some stuff. And she got, they got really somber. And she said, uh, you know, when I was a little girl, I grew up in Whitewood. And uh, they had this bus from this Baptist church would come by and pick me up. And she said, they took me to this thing called Awana. I said, no, yeah, I know Awana. And she said, uh, I got saved as a little girl. And I was really involved in church, really super involved. Somewhere around the lines of my teenage years, I just kind of wandered away. It's like I'm divorced. I've got two little girls. And uh, you could tell she wanted to talk. We're getting close to the palace. You know, my wife's there and everything. And I just kind of reached over and grabbed her hand and said, Listen, it is not a coincidence that your limo broke down on a ramp off the side of the bar and another limo picked you up and inside. I look over at that guy just answer close. 
you could see him. He's just so mad. He could kill me. He had this whole thing planned out, and it was gone. <laughs> <laughs> it was just finished. It was wiped out. Everything he was thinking about was just gone. And she starts to cry, and she's like, "Yeah, I think you're right. And I need to get back to church." And, and I said, "Where do you still? Where do you live?" And she said, "I know a couple of churches there, and there's this one, and, and, and stuff. Why don't you try those churches? Why don't you go there and, and be there?" God, this is not a coincidence. God loves you. And he has a great future for you. Listen. God didn't bring a limo. But he brought you here to listen to him today. And he wants to say the same thing to you as he was saying about to say to that lady. God loves you. He has a great future for you. The only thing that will ruin it. Jesus as your personal Savior and your birth. So what's your future going to be? Is it going to be God's plan or your plan? I've seen my plan and it doesn't work very well. And I've seen his 